1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 16. This will be a, probably a fairly familiar passage in terms of uh, what happened with Elijah on Mount Carmel. A very interesting piece here. Elijah standing before not only uh, wicked King Ahab, but also a number of false prophets. First Kings 18, beginning with verse 16 through verse 40. Let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned and abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elisha said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it to pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay on it the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elisha said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you or many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took that bull that was given them and they prepared it and called it called upon the name of Baal from morning to until noon, saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar and they that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing or He is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on in the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sets of seeds. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull to piece in pieces and laid on it the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled up the trench with water. 
And at the time of the offering of the, of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering of the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water as was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elisha said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no, not, none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders, and I will introduce for you Carl Truman. Many of you were here last night. Some of you here for uh, adult Sunday school. Carl Truman is a professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which happens to be the seminary that David Williams is currently attending. And so I have heard of Carl through David and through some other sources and just uh, have appreciated his understanding of church history, how that history impacts our current situation, and we've asked him to come spend the weekend with us. So we've been, Carl, it's been a pleasure to have you here so far on the, yes, last night and again today, and he's also staying over tomorrow morning, and he's talking to a group of pastors here in town for pastor appreciation, and I'm sure they're going to appreciate you being here as well. Carl uh, comes to us to teach us from First Kings. Thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to it's a pleasure to to be here this morning and to to share God's word with you and uh, give me a chance to to thank publicly Paul and David and uh, the Eford family for helping make the arrangements for 
for me to be here. I wanted to reflect uh, just uh, briefly this morning on that very familiar story that was just read to us from the first book of Kings. Uh, I think it's probably true to say that whether you're a Christian or whether you're a non-Christian, we all exist and gain our identity from being in relation to other things, particularly to other people. We are, if you like, the sum of the relationships that we have. And right at the heart of the Bible's message is, the, uh, the, the, the central message is that human beings are their most human when they stand in relationship to God. And this story before us this morning, I think, gives us a good example of what happens when human beings do not stand in that right relationship to God. It is, of course, very familiar. You will no doubt have read and heard this story read many, many times. But there is a bit of background that we need to to get our heads around before we can fully understand what I think the Lord is trying to teach us in this passage. The ministry of Elijah, of course, takes place at a very particular moment in the history of Israel. Israel is not a united kingdom at this point in time. Israel has been divided between Judah and Benjamin and the other ten tribes. This is what they call the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And we need to know why that took place in order to understand the full significance, I think, of what's taking place in this passage before us. Solomon, you'll remember, was the great son of David. There was not a wiser king in the history of Israel than Solomon. But he was a great example of the kind of person who starts well, but finishes disastrously badly. Towards the end of his life, Solomon takes many, many wives from the nations around him. And worse than that, not only does he intermarry with nations that the Lord has forbidden the Israelites to intermarry with, but he inevitably goes after the gods of these women. He introduces false worship into Israel. And so the Lord decides that uh, as punishment on Israel for the sins of its king, the kingdom after Solomon will be divided. And Solomon's son Rehoboam, who succeeds to the the throne when Solomon dies, uh, engages in a policy of brutal repression against his people and causes numerous of the tribes under the leadership of a man called Jeroboam to rebel against the house of Judah. And so the kingdom will be divided after Solomon dies between the kingdom of Judah ruled by a man called Rehoboam and the kingdom of Israel ruled by a man called Jeroboam. Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Jeroboam the son of Nebat has a problem. It's a political problem. He is king of numerous of the tribes of Israel. But Jerusalem is in the territory of Judah, which creates a situation where his people have divided loyalties. Their political loyalties, if you like, are to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But geographically, they need to go to the temple to worship God. temple is where the Ark of the Covenant is. The temple is where God dwells covenantly with his people. There's something special you have in Jerusalem that you don't have anywhere else. So Jeroboam comes up with a brilliant solution to this problem. What he does in order to avoid this divided geographical loyalty among his people is that he sets up golden calves in the cities of Bethel and Dan and he says to the people of Israel, you don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship the God that brought you out of Egypt. The God who brought you out of Egypt is here embodied in the figures of these calves. Bow down and worship the golden calves, and you are worshipping the true God. 
So Jeroboam introduce, effectively introduces into Israel the false worship of the true God. It's kind of idolatry. And throughout the books of Kings, there's a little phrase that occurs again and again when uh, the kings of Israel are being discussed. It'll tell you, the, the writer will tell you something about the king and then he'll say, but he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he caused Israel to sin. So Jeroboam, son of Nebat, if you like, becomes the benchmark of sin <coughs> among the kings of Israel. <coughs> All of the future kings, whatever their strengths were in Israel, they had this weakness. They hadn't got the political strength of character to tear down the golden calves and allow their people to go and worship in Jerusalem. But there's one king that that isn't said about, and that is King Ahab. And Ahab is introduced for us in the first book of Kings, chapter 16. Uh, Don't turn up, but I'll read you from verse 29. The writer tells us the following. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And then we get to the real sting in the tail. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So you see, whereas for most kings of Israel, the basic, kind of the high watermark of their sin was they didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. For Ahab, that's the starting point. It's a little thing for Ahab to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's where he begins his sinful career. He's not satisfied in leading Israel to idolatrous worship of the true God. Ahab introduces false worship of false gods into Israel. Specifically, we're told, the god Baal. Now, who was the god Baal? We all know him from the Old Testament. He was a bad god. We know from archaeological work in the the ancient Near East that Baal was a god particularly associated with fertility. And particularly associated with the giving of rain. Think about it, ancient Near East, it's an agrarian agricultural society. What makes the land fertile? Rain. So Ahab is a god that has control of the rain. And you can understand in ancient Israel that if you think this god has control of the rain, you'd be very... Uh, careful to make sure that you keep him on the right side. You don't want to do anything that displeases God of fertility, because if you do that, the skies will be closed. And you will all die within a few years, because the crops won't grow. Well, guess what? This is where Elijah enters the scene. Elijah appears in the Bible as if from nowhere. Elijah the Tishbite seems to wander in from the desert one day. And what does he declare? He tells Ahab, there will be no rain until I say so. Because you are not worshipping the God who gives rain. You are worshipping Baal. And the Lord God of Israel is going to demonstrate to you who it is who controls the rains in Israel. Who it is who really gives fertility. 
And that is the background to the uh, incident that we then read about in 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18 isn't an isolated confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 18 is the latest chapter in an ongoing battle between the God of Israel and the fictional God Baal. It's the climactic moment, if you like, from when Elijah and the God of Israel have called Baal out and said, OK, we're going to take you on on your home territory. We're going to see who is really God in Israel. You think you control the rain? There will be no rain in Israel until the God of Israel declares that it will be so. So what you have in 1 Kings 18 then is, if you like, the final showdown of a war that has been going on for three years at this point. Three years on Baal's home territory. And what do we know about this, this final showdown then? Well, notice first of all, the final showdown will take place on Baal's home territory as well. It's going to be trial by fire on the top of a mountain. And the ancient carvings we have of Baal show him carrying thunderbolts. Mount Karma has a similar climate, I believe, to uh, Arizona. There are mountains in Arizona that are struck by lightning four or five hundred times a year. Reasonable chance if you go up on the top of mountain Arizona and call on the god Baal to set light to a pile of twigs, the lightning bolt will come down and set fire to those pile of twigs. We know from the, the inscriptions and the carvings around Mount Carmel that Mount Carmel was an area where Baal worship was particularly strong. So Elijah is continuing his policy of taking on Baal on home territory. Elijah here is saying to the, the, the people of Israel, right, you think Baal is God? We're going to demonstrate to you how strong your God is. We're going to fight your God on his terms. We're going to choose to bring drought to Israel. And now as we reach this final movement in this conflict, we're going to take the battle right into the heart of the center of Baal worship, where your God is particularly strong. And we're going to choose a means of trial, which is right up, right up Baal Street. Trial by fire. We're going to have these great altars on top of this mountain. And the God who answers by fire, he's the true God. Not only that, but Elijah then goes on to say, uh, and you can have first choice of the sacrifice. You can go first. And when Elijah comes, of course, to make his own sacrifice, what does he do? He has piles and piles of water poured, poured onto the, the altar. Presumably in order to make himself even weaker in conflict with the god Baal. Well, the first thing I want you to notice then of relevance for us today is this. Notice how weak God makes himself in order to destroy his opponents. What you're seeing here laid out in the Old Testament is God's standard modus operandi. In order to destroy powerful looking gods that are no gods at all, the Lord God of Israel is making himself as weak and as vulnerable as he possibly can. And this is a pattern of divine behavior, if you like, that will reach its culmination on the cross at Calvary. What happens on the cross at Calvary? Well, the Lord God triumphs over hell, the flesh, and the devil. How does he do that? By making himself weak. By putting himself precisely in the power of the powers of evil in order to overcome them. 
Our God is a God who makes himself weak and vulnerable in order to demonstrate his true power. And if you carry that through to today, well, what does that lesson does that carry for us today? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 1 teach us? It teaches us that God delights in working through weakness in order to demonstrate his total power and sovereignty. Paul, speaking there to a church that would have been made up of people who were really drawn out of the scum of the earth. Church in Corinth is like having a church on the Vegas Strip. Imagine, if you're a church on the Vegas Strip, the kind of people are going to be making up your congregation if your church is doing its job properly over the years. Scum of the earth. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians? God delights in building his church through the weak things and the despised things. Because that is precisely what enhances his own power. There is no way, when you look at the cross, that you can say, well, this is an act of human power. The cross is crushing weakness. And yet that crushing weakness is what crushes the powers of evil. So notice, first of all, here in 1 Kings chapter 18, the first uh, lesson is this. Look at how God operates in the Old Testament. One of his greatest triumphs over the powers of evil, is facilitated by making himself as weak as possible. We see, if you like, a consistency here between the way God operates in the Old Testament, the way he operates in the New Testament, and the way he builds his church in the post-Pentecost era as well. Second thing to notice is this. It's very noisy that day on the top of that mountain. If you look at the behavior of the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal spend the best part of the day dancing around this altar, screaming and shouting, crying aloud. Finally, they end up mutilating themselves. There's a lot of mess and a lot of noise on the top of Mount Carmel that day. But the most stunning thing, I think, about the way the writer tells us the story is not the noise. It's the silence that is so stunning. Verse 29, the last part, verse 29, said, As this day passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. You have all this noise and raving going on. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was silence. The noise of the prophets of Baal served temporarily to disguise the silence of their God. But at some point that day, the prophets of Baal themselves had to fall silent. They had nothing left to say. We don't know who these prophets of Baal were. I'm guessing many of them may have been very, very sincere people. Who knows what you had to sacrifice in the ancient world to be a prophet of Baal? Maybe it was a hard road you had to tread in terms of training and life to be a prophet of Baal. Maybe these men had sacrificed much for their God. And on the day they called to him, the one moment they really need their God to speak to them, absolute silence. And as their God is silent, so they fall silent. And I suggest to you, that is exactly what one should expect. Turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is perhaps one of the most brilliant analyses of idolatry in the whole of Scripture. The psalmist seems to be calling out to God and saying, you know, don't let the nations mock us. 
Don't let the nations mock us, Lord. Not to us, O Lord, the psalmist says. Not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Then we come to the verses that analyze idolatry. There, that's these other nations. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. You remember that brilliant bit in Isaiah where he talks about the man who goes out and he chops down a tree and half of it he he uses to make himself a god and he bows down and worships it and the other half he throws on the fire to, to cook his dinner with. And he never makes the connection between it's a piece of wood, I threw it on the fire and I, I cook my dinner and I, and I worship part of it. And the guy never thinks to himself, this is stupid, why am I doing this? They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Brilliant description there of, of an idol. And then you come to the punchline. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. I started this sermon by saying, you know, we all stand in relation to other things and the Bible really says that we can only be truly human if we stand in a proper relationship to God. I would recast that in terms of this and say, you can only really have something to say if you stand in a proper relation to the God who speaks. This psalm tells us you ultimately become that which you worship. You ultimately come to resemble that which you worship. There's a school of thought that says, you know, if you own a dog, you grow over time to grow to look a bit like your dog. I own a Jack Russell Terrier. Maybe I look a bit like a Jack Russell, maybe I don't. But I can tell you one thing for certain. I will resemble that which I worship. These prophets of Baal that day, their God was silent. And ultimately they too had to fall silent. One of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century was a man called Michel Foucault. I spent many hours, days, weeks reading Foucault. He's a fascinating thinker. He transformed literary theory. He's a French intellectual transform literary theory, transform the way people think about the world and think about texts. He also lived a life of what one might describe quite bluntly of massive overindulgence and idolatrous wickedness. I won't go into details, frankly it's too revolting. But in 1984, Michel Foucault is lying dying of AIDS in a hospital in California. And a number of his followers gather at his bedside and I've read this in a biography of Foucault written by one of his followers. This isn't from some Christian text that invents a useful story for Christians to use. Got this from the horse's mouth. This is a follower of Foucault recounts this story. At his bedside as he's dying, his followers say to him, you know, how do you assess your life? What do you have left to say to us? And Foucault says the following. He says, you know, I always thought that at the final moment there would be something to say. But there is nothing to say, there is only silence. Those who make them will be like them. You spend your life in a life of idolatrous overindulgence and worship of dumb idols, and at the final moment you will have nothing to say. These men had spent their lives in idolatry, maybe very sincerely. They spent their lives worshipping Baal, a God that was no God, a God that was silent. And finally, 
on that day when his silence is so eloquent, so they too fall silent and have nothing to say. And I suggest the application of that is all too obvious to us. What do you worship? Do you worship your car or your family? Sports team? Money? Your wife? Your children? Whatever you worship, you will come to resemble that thing. And if that thing is not God, sooner or later that thing will be silent and you will have nothing to say. It's a tragedy, isn't it? That the one moment when these men really, need Baal, really needed Baal to speak, he had nothing to say. And as a result, they too had nothing to say. Maybe you worship the church. You can even use religious idiom to express idolatrous worship. If that which you worship is not the God of Israel, ultimately you have nothing to say. And one day you will die. You will reach that final moment that Foucault reached in 1984. But the question is, will you have anything to say? And the answer to that question will be determined entirely by that which you choose to worship. So the second lesson from this passage, I think, is here you have a great example in practice of what Psalm 115 describes in theory. Those who make them will be like them. So are all who worship them. Brings me to my third point. What a contrast. Elijah. Elijah does a couple of odd things that day. Not least, we've already talked about one. He seems to go out of his way to give an advantage to the prophets of Baal. There are 450 of them and there's only one of him. Trial by fire, which is Baal's speciality in many ways, on top of a mountain. There's a good chance it's going to be hit by lightning anyway. He allows them to go first. They can choose. They can choose the ox to sacrifice. It'll be like in a duel, I believe, in the old days. You challenge somebody to a duel, and the challenger always allowed the one challenged to choose the pistol. So there'd be no shenanigans in fixing the pistols. Elijah gives every advantage to the prophets of Baal to win in full confidence that because they worship a God who is no God, there's no way they're going to win. But he goes out of his way to give them every chance he can. So that's the first strange thing he does. And then the next strange thing is what he does when he gathers the people to him. He takes twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel should be your name. Very significant move. He sets up these twelve stones. He doesn't set up ten stones, and he doesn't set up fourteen stones. He sets up 12 stones. Why does he set up 12 stones? The 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel, we're told. Now the kingdom is divided. But what's Elijah doing? He's pointing people back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Why is he doing that? Well, later, of course, when he calls on the God, he says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have all done these things at your word. What is he doing with these stones? He's symbolically reconstituting Israel. Symbolically reconstituting Israel. Why is he doing that? Because Israel, small and pathetic and economically and socially irrelevant as they are in the ancient world, there's always bigger kingdoms out there than there are Israel in the ancient world, small and socially economically irrelevant as they are, they were the group that the Lord had chosen to speak through to reveal himself to, to work his universal 
plans for the human race through. Elijah's building a little temple. Elijah's building a little temple here. He's symbolizing the presence of God with Israel. Because how is God present with Israel? Well, God's present with the Egyptians, of course, at this point, and the Sidonians and the Assyrians. And in South America, he's, he's present with the South Americans. God's everywhere. But he's specially present with Israel. He's present with Israel according to his promise to be their God and to bring about this great restoration of creation through Israel. Elijah is making it patently obvious what the difference between Baal and the God of Israel are. When he sets up those twelve stones, when he symbolically reconstitutes Israel, he points back to the great covenants of God with Israel. He points back in time to a God who has spoken and who has acted consistently throughout history. He is letting people know, I worship the God who speaks. I worship the God who acts. Elijah, if you like, is demonstrating to people why he has something to say. He has something to say that day because he worships the true God. And when he calls upon the names, the name of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, he's reminding the people there of the speech of God in the past and of the actions of God in the past, symbolized so dramatically in these twelve stones that he set up. And he's reminding people there is only one true God. The God who has acted to save and to speak in, to and through his people Israel. And that's why it's no surprise that as he's done this and he calls upon the name of the covenant God, what happens? He speaks to God, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have not turned their hearts back. And Elijah, not only does he make noise, but he has something to say as well. And he has something to say because he knows that God has spoken and acted throughout Israel's history. And what happens? God then acts. Fire falls upon the altar. The burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust are licked up with the water. And what do the people of Israel say? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Suddenly it is dramatically obvious to these people who the real God is. They've had three years without rain. Baal has failed them every day of those three years. And now when the prophets of Baal have had their chance to demonstrate that their God is a real God, they've fallen silent. They've fallen as silent as the sticks and the stones they worship. And now Elijah has reminded them of Israel, of God's purposes for Israel, of the great covenants with Israel. And the authenticity of his words is demonstrated by the fact that not only has he spoken to them of God who's acted in the past, but God immediately acts in the present. So the second part of my application, I suppose, is this. Don't worship a silent God. Don't worship sticks and stones. Don't worship money. Don't worship your family. Worship the God of Israel. Read the Old Testament. See how this God speaks and acts in the Old Testament. You want something to say? You want your words and your deeds to mean something? Then be the person you are supposed to be. Be one who loves and worships the Lord God who speaks and acts. The challenge laid before you this morning 
is not simply to go away here and stop worshipping that which is false. It is to worship that which is true. If those who worship dumb idols are as dumb and as impotent as the idols they worship, then surely those who worship the Lord God have as much to say and as many powerful things to say and do as the Lord God whom they worship. The power of your Christian life, the power of your church, is not judged by the number of programs you have. It's not judged by the number of people who turn up in church on a Sunday. It's not judged by how much money your church has in its current account. All of those things may be good in and of themselves. But the power of your church, the eloquence of your church, the significance of your church is judged by this. Do you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel? Do you worship the God who acts and speaks to save? That is the gospel for you this morning. That is the challenge for you as a church and as individuals this morning. Let's approach the word of prayer. Our Lord, we pray. Lord God, you are a great and wonderful God. You are a God who has acted throughout history. You are the God who called Abraham, who called Isaac, and who called Israel. You are the God who brought your people out of slavery in Egypt. You are the God who raised up the great King David. You are the God who empowered Elijah and Elisha and the prophets. Supremely, O Lord, you are the God who revealed himself in and through the incarnation of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, O Lord, that we do not have a silent God or a distant God, but we have a God who acts and who speaks. Though we are few, though we feel weak, Lord, we praise you that you have revealed yourself to be a God whose strength is made perfect through weakness. A God who acts through weakness to save. A God whose foolishness is so much wiser than our greatest wisdom. And we ask this day, O Lord, that our hearts and minds would be drawn away from the temptations and the idols and the false gods of this world and caused to focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That in and through him we might worship the true God. And that in and through him, Lord, we may indeed have something to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.